morning. I'm Justin. It's nice to meet you all. Uh, If you don't know who I am, because I've been gone for three months, my name is Justin DeBerry. I'm the senior pastor here at West Center, uh, and I've been on sabbatical. Uh, This is the first time, I think, in our history, maybe as a church or something close to it, that we've done something like this. Uh, So it's fantastic to be back home uh, with you guys. Um, I want to say thank you to you. Thank you for giving me and my family this time. Uh, Thank you especially to the church staff, Trevor, Jackie, everyone, um, and, and many who stepped up and filled in the gaps in ministry. Just appreciate that. It was a wonderful blessing that I think we didn't realize we needed as much as we did until we actually got into it and and started to detox. And um, I think personally, the way I would say it is it allowed us to be or allowed me in particular to be a human being, you know, to take the pastor hat off and to just be a human being. Uh, Sometimes, not you, of course, but people might view pastors as just kind of ministry machines. We just do ministry, we just crank it out all the time, and actually we're just normal people, weak, limited, we struggle with sin, Uh, and so that time to be able to process even what we've gone through the last couple of years, think deeply about it, meet with the Lord, away from the responsibilities of ministry was just so good for our soul, so good for my soul. Um, We had great family time. We had great time uh, just having conversations with our girls without anything to, you know, anywhere to go or anywhere to be. Um, Carrie and I had great conversations. We just, we spent a lot of time together. And I mean, I think it's probably a good sign. We weren't really tired of each other at the end of that. But like I was always there. She couldn't get away from me. And so we're doing good. But one thing I've told the elders is that uh, being gone, I'm so grateful for our church. I'm so grateful for you guys and what we do on Sunday mornings. I mean, the singing we just experienced, like I'll just tell you, most churches, most Christians do not get to experience that. We've been going around to other churches, and and it's been wonderful and great to be a part of different traditions and exposed to different pastors and churches, but particularly our worship service and our singing and some of the things that happen on Sunday morning, it's special, guys. And we just give God the glory for that. We thank him, and we're just happy to be along for the ride and participating in it. Um, So if you want to know anything about sabbatical, anything I did or what was going on, the door is open. Feel free to call me, come talk to me. Um, I don't want to bore you with all the details. And uh, we have so much time and so little to do today. So you'll get it later. Um, So we got to keep moving. We got to keep moving. But... Feel free to, to come chat me up about sabbatical. Thank you again. Um, Chase mentioned it this morning. We are going to get into Sunday school in a couple weeks, and we're going to do something different this semester. Uh, we talked about it as elders back in the spring. Um, we want to do church history as a church, so everyone together. And if I may be so bold, I think as evangelical Christians, this is an area that we're a little bit weak in. Uh, we're a little bit shallow in our understanding and knowledge of what has come before us. Um, because the church's story, going back to the apostles and to Jesus, is our story. When we talk about our church, like 
we didn't just drop out of the sky. There's a reason we're here and we do things the way we do and believe what we believe. And so I think it's going to be really exciting to trace that all the way back from the ancient church through the Middle Ages into the Reformation. And we're going to do that in 10 weeks. We're going to move fast. And then in the spring, we're going to go back to our normal Sunday school where we have men's, women's, adult class. So we'll take a break, go back to normal. And then the next fall, we'll come back and finish. And we'll do from the Reformation all the way up to the modern church. And we'll get into, you know, 1885, West Center Baptist was founded. So uh, I hope you enjoy that. I know it's a little different, uh, but I think, I think it'll be worthwhile uh, for us as a church. Let's open our Bibles, if you haven't already. Revelation chapter 1. If you're using a pew Bible, that's on page 1029. We think probably the last book of the New Testament to be written. I could have I could have that wrong, but I'm pretty sure that some some favor an early date, but we we tend to favor most scholars to favor a later date in the 90s. Uh, John was uh, probably the oldest apostle, the last one to die. He saw all of his friends. He preached all the other apostles' funerals, if you want to think about it that way. Uh, but God had him live to a ripe old age, and we're thank that, thankful that he did because he gave us this. So let's read uh, verses 1, 1 through 3. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. Let's pray. Almighty God, who sits on your glorious throne, surrounded with light, crystal, a sea of glass before you calm around your throne. We now come before that throne, in the name of Jesus, and we ask that we would experience the blessing of this book. Thank you for the promise, Lord, to bless us. And that is my heart, that these brothers and sisters, your family, your children, your people, would experience the blessing of revelation. Lord, you, in your kindness, have intended it for our good. So we ask, Holy Spirit, that you would work. My confidence is not in me. My confidence is in you. And Lord, as you have laid this upon my heart, I believe that's for a reason. I believe you have something for us here as a church in the time and place that we find ourselves in world history that we need this book. We need it. And so we ask that you would pour out your spirit upon us. In Jesus' name. Amen. All right, you ready? I may regret this decision. Maybe I am already, but once you get on the roller coaster, you can't get off. It's too late for that now. Uh, we're going to go through it in, in 
you know, I certainly haven't experienced this in my life of a pastor or a church going through it all the way through. Uh, maybe the letters or, or, you know, a sermon here or there. But we're going to go through section by section. It's going to take us the better part of a year, uh, maybe longer. And we're going to take some breaks. We'll take a break for Advent. We'll probably take a break next summer uh, before we get to, you know, 17, 18, 19, all the way through. Um, why Revelation? Why preach through Revelation? Well, I don't want you to think that I woke up one morning, I read the newspaper, and I said, oh my gosh, what is going on out there in the world? We have got to get into Revelation and figure it out. That's not what happened. The church has always needed this book. Always. It's been for us, for the church. We will always need it, and tragically, in my judgment, it's been neglected. And maybe for obvious reasons, it's hard, it's difficult, it's strange to us, but uh, it's been neglected. And for many of us, it's been ruined by bad teaching. At its heart, Revelation is a source of encouragement and hope for weary Christians. At its heart, Revelation is a source of encouragement and hope for weary Christians. Is anyone weary? Does anyone feel they need an injection of confidence that everything's going to be okay? Uh, does anyone need courage to be a Christian in this world right now? I do. I do. That's why God gave us this book, The Revelation of Jesus Christ. Notice I said revelation, singular, not revelations. I hear people say, well, yeah, I love revelations. Like, well, that's cool. Did you get, like, extra ones that you want to share? Maybe you're just a little more charismatic than me. Like, let me in on the secret. What'd you get from the Lord? No. It's just one singular revelation from beginning to end, unified from Jesus and about Jesus. The first three words of the book in the Greek are apocalypsis Jesu Christu. The apocalypse of Jesus Christ, which doesn't mean big battle. I mean, that's kind of what we think of apocalypse now. We think of like this big battle. No, in the Greek, actually, it means to unveil, to reveal, to show what was hidden. The apocalypse, the unveiling of Jesus Christ, from Jesus Christ. So essentially, God is letting you behind the curtain of heaven. That's really helpful because things are not always what they seem in this world, are they? You remember the great scene in The Wizard of Oz where um, the curtain gets pulled back at the end of the story and Dorothy and friends see the wizard as he truly is. Up until that point, the appearance, what they thought they knew was the great and powerful Oz. Smoke, thunder, fire, really big teeth. I don't know if he's British, but it's like, man, he had big teeth. And he's shouting at them and yelling, and, and like, they're scared. They can't even speak in his presence, but then the curtain gets pulled back, and it's like, oh, he's just a scared, insecure old man. I actually feel compassion for him. That was the reality, but it wasn't what it seemed. Revelation is like that. It pulls back the curtain for us to show reality, true spiritual reality, 
the Father who shows Jesus all that he is doing. Then Jesus takes all that and he says, here, John, give it to the church. I want them to see. I want them to see the true nature of reality. Jesus invites you into heaven and says, look, this is what's really going on in the world. That is amazing. That is amazing. Just think about that. God says, I want to show you things from my perspective. It's not meant to scare you. Just the opposite. It's meant to give you a backbone of steel so you will trust Jesus, obey Jesus, no matter what this world does to you. Because you know the truth. You know what's really going on. You know who the king is if you've read this book. Now, you might not believe me, but the hardest part about Revelation is not understanding it. It's obeying Because of who Jesus is, what he has done, what he is doing, what he will do, let's endure. Let's conquer. Let's stay faithful to him until the last day. Amen? That's what he wants for you. To persevere. So today I want to talk about principles, themes you got in your bulletin. I want to walk through those and then we'll finish with the prologue one through three. And, and as you're pulling that out, uh, let me say a couple things up front. There are various approaches to interpreting this book. It's not easy. We can just say that up front. It's not. Um, we all need to come with a certain level of humility, myself included, to this book um, and admit that it's hard. Whatever your past understanding, maybe, maybe you come with just an open mind. Uh, take it on its own terms. And that's my goal. My goal is to take the book on its own terms, which is how you should read every book of the Bible. Is it a letter to the church? Read it that way. Is it a historical narrative? Read it that way. Is it a poem? Read it that way. Is it a pop, an apocalyptic vision in the form of a letter? Read it that way. So I want to approach the text on its own terms, its own genre. I don't want to force something on it because, well, that just has to be the way that you interpret it. It just has to be this way. No, we want to take it on its own terms and just let the Bible inform, based on its own genre, what it is, the kind of literature, inform our, our interpretation. So that's what I'm trying to do. It doesn't mean I'm going to get everything right. I'm not, you know. The Lord's going to sit me down in heaven and correct me on some things. Uh, but I'm going to try to be faithful. Try to be faithful to, to the text. And um, at certain points, controversial passages, difficult passages, some of you know those. We will highlight different views. Okay, some Christians believe this, some Christians believe this. Here's what I believe and why. Uh, but I can't do that every week. I can't do that on every passage. I mean, I would never get to anything. So what I need to do is just give you what I think the text means, explain it to you, help you through it the best that I can. Um, and that's what I'll try to do. And let me say one other thing. I want to major on the majors. In Revelation, I think the church has been guilty on majoring in the minors. 
in this book and we get really fixated on little things when actually we kind of miss the point of the whole book, why it was given to us. So we want to focus on the major themes. It's actually meant to be unifying, I think, where it's been so divisive. It's meant to unify us. Okay, number one. Revelation was written to help God's people trust his sovereignty and persevere in obeying him until Jesus returns, not satisfy every curiosity about his return. We got way too many Christians with weird, obsessive interests in this book, like turning it into a Dungeons and Dragons game or something. Like a, like a detective where you put the pins with the yarn, you know, and you're trying to figure out like all the clues and everything that's supposed to happen. That's not what it's about. See, lots of people want to figure out Revelation, but are totally uninterested in obeying it. If that's you, I hope you'll repent. Maybe you need to repent. If you've met one of those people obsessed with this book and all its details, just know that that's not what Christianity is about. Here's the problem. We argue about revelation when we should be applying it. We demand allegiance to our interpretation from others when we should be demanding obedience from ourselves. Look, to follow Jesus, you need this book. You need it. To get to heaven, you need it. It's not optional. Like, we treat it as it's optional. It's not if you want to be equipped for every good work, if you want to be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing, you need the book of Revelation. God gave it to us for a reason. And here's the thing. It's not primarily about the future. Way off in the distance, someday, it doesn't really apply to me. You know, it's just for somewhere down the road out there so I can kind of ignore it. No. It's about the choices that we're making right now. Remember, this was given to the church in the first century. It makes no sense to me that almost all of the book is only for the people alive when Jesus returns. It doesn't make any sense to me. Clearly, there are things that are future. We know that. There are clearly things that, that have yet to take place. But don't think, hey, I can just kind of blow this off because it's all happening in the future and I'll probably be dead and not a big deal. Number two, God gave us the book not to provoke fear or confusion, but to inspire hope and confidence. Despite all appearances, Jesus is in total control and will save his people. As I've studied this book, I'll be honest, I'm frustrated with American evangelical culture that we've used this book to scare people and sell entertainment. That's what we've used it for in many circles. And that makes me kind of mad. Bread lines and guillotines and you see a pile of clothes and it's, well, I'm, did I get left behind? It's like, no. That's not why God gave us the book, to scare you. That's what I grew up with. I was scared. God knows this world is scary. That's why he gave us revelation. Not so that we would be more scared, but we would have a calm confidence 
in his sovereign goodness. A calm confidence in who he is, what he's done, what he will do. If you read this book rightly, it should make you less afraid, not more. It should give you more peace, not less. Number three, John is experiencing God's revelation in a prophetic vision, a dreamlike form, and simply telling us what he saw. You know when you have a really vivid dream and you wake up and it's fresh in your mind and you want to tell someone so you don't forget? I had the weirdest dream last night. I'm up on a stage and I have to give the speech and all my high school classmates are there and I have no pants on and I can't find my pants and I got to give the speech and everybody's laughing at me and then there's a unicorn in the crowd. I don't know. You know, it's just weird. We don't even know what it means. We're just like, you got to tell somebody before you forget. I think that's a little bit what like John is experiencing. He's been caught up into heaven He's, he's shown this kind of dreamlike vision with, with strange things. I don't think he fully understands what he's seeing at the moment. I think he's just reporting it. Often, like, we don't fully understand what our dreams are like. But maybe we just tell somebody, I had this dream. Some of you feel, this is going to be really difficult. I don't think I'm going to be able to understand this book. It's intimidating. What I would say to you is, you can. You can. You were meant to. God would not have given it to you unless you were meant to understand it. So I need you to believe that. I need you to trust God, especially when things start to get weird. And they're going to get weird. You were meant to understand this book. You have the Holy Spirit. Tell yourself that. Number four. The book views the present world from the perspective of heaven, showing the true nature of things as God sees them. What is hidden on earth to us is revealed in Revelation. The hidden, resurrected, ascended, glorified Christ is revealed. The hidden armies of angels and demons revealed. The hidden hypocrisy of false believers revealed. The hidden wickedness of the world's system revealed. The hidden plan to renew all things revealed. The hidden glory and beauty of the bride of Christ revealed. This is reality. And it's not what we always think it is. And the reality is there's a battle going on. And that's, that's the heart of the book. There's a battle. A battle for your soul. This is what people don't realize. There's a battle going on for your soul right now. You can't see it playing out, but it is. Satan will do anything he can to get you to compromise your faith to keep you from faith in Jesus. He will do anything he can. There, there's powerful forces working against you. If you're not a Christian, if you haven't given your life to Jesus, the question that this book would ask you is this. Whose side do you want to be on? 
Whose side do you want to be on? The dragon, the beast, the false prophet, or the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit? Do you want to be on the losing side where you get to kind of do what you want in this life, but you are in the lake of fire forever and ever? Or do you want to be on the winning side where this life is hard and you might even be called to die for saying Jesus is Lord, but you have eternal glory waiting for you? You have to make a choice. We all do. You have to choose a side. And the fact of the matter is you already have. But it's not too late to change sides if you're on the wrong one. There's a battle going on. and We all have to choose sides. That's the truth. Number five. The book is not written in direct chronological order. That may be a new thought to you. I think it's true. I think it's helpful. I think it makes it less confusing. Let me just give you a couple examples of why I say that. Chapter 5, a vision of Jesus ascending into heaven, taking his rightful place at the Father's side to rule this present age. Well, when did that happen? 33 AD, Acts chapter 1. We know that. We know that was from the time the book was written. That's something that happened in the past. Chapter 12 depicts the birth of Jesus, I think. Um, the dragon, Satan, is attempting to kill him through Herod. Clearly something in the past, and you're, you're in chapter 12. So just be aware of that. Things are not moving chronologically directly from chapter 1 through chapter 22. There's, there's moving around here. Um, repetition. Events described often refer to multiple historical events of a similar nature. So past, present, future. Basically, this means there are patterns. There are patterns. In, in, in between the time of Jesus' first coming and his second coming, the same kind of stuff is playing out over and over again. So, so you think of it, it's just it's like this. Okay? It's taking different shapes, different forms, and escalating. So there's patterns and there's progress. There's repetition and there's escalation. We're moving forward towards something, but the same type of things are happening over and over again. Judgments on land, sea, river, sky. These are happening. They have happened. They will happen. And they're going to escalate as things get closer to the end. You can think of pandemics. Okay, something we're all familiar with now, whether we want it to be or not. In general terms, a judgment of God. Now, I don't want to get real specific about that, like, oh, the countries that had it worse were worse than other countries. Or, no, just generally, okay, it's a judgment of God. We wouldn't have a pandemic if sin were not in the world. But we're not looking for one particular pandemic or famine or war. This is the one. We're in the end times. No, they have happened, they are happening, they will happen. A pattern is playing out again and again. So you have repetition, but you also have escalation. There is a general movement from the church's present struggle to future glory. So the book does move generally from letters to early churches toward the New Jerusalem. There is a crescendo to the battle. There is a last battle where things escalate. 
Final victory for Jesus and his people, destruction for Satan and his people. Perspective. John often sees the same event from different angles. So it's, sometimes it's like Jesus invites John to watch the same game from a different seat in the stadium. If you ever sat behind home plate and then you sat at the top of the outfield bleachers at a baseball game, you know you, you see different things. You notice different things. It's the same game, but you catch different things. That's something to remember in Revelation, that sometimes God is showing, Jesus is showing John the same thing, just from a different angle, a different perspective, whether it's a heavenly one or an earthly one or just something different about that particular thing. Give you an example. There's only one last judgment. We agree on that? It seems clear in the New Testament there's a, there's a last day, there's a, a final judgment. But John sees the final judgment many times in the book of Revelation. Chapter 6, the sixth seal, the great day of wrath. Chapter 19, Jesus riding on a white horse. Chapter 20, God on the great white throne of judgment. Same final judgment, just different perspectives. He's sitting in different seats. We're not saying, well, there's a judgment in chapter 6 and then another one, a different one in chapter 19, and then another one in 20. No. I think it's the same one. He's just giving us different perspectives on it. Sitting in different seats, reporting what he sees for our benefit. So there's something we need from each of those perspectives. Okay? Keep that in mind. Number six. The book is filled with symbols that communicate truth through imagery. For example, lampstand, harlot, beast, horns, often taken from the Old Testament. This is tough for us because in our culture, uh, we tend to like information in a very literal, straightforward way. Um, you know, just the facts, please. We're logical, rational, efficient. Just cut to the chase, Jack. Like, give me what I need to know. Okay, don't waste my time. Just what, what is it? Tell me. We just like a, like a straight news. That's kind of what we like and prefer. The problem is a paragraph of facts does not hit you like a picture does. You know what I mean? Like if I were to just tell you monotone some event and then either I described it vividly or I showed you a picture, that's going to hit you differently. What that means for you is you're going to have to crank up that old, rusty, out-of-shape imagination. I mean, the kids are not going to have a problem here, okay? The kids are going to, like, get this. They're going to do great. It's us old people, I'm 41, I can say that now, that need to crank up the imagination. Don't shake your heads. You have to see it in your mind. As you hear it, you have to see it. Before you think about it, you have to feel it. That's the point. The sea of glass like crystal around God's throne, you need to picture that. The hot breath of the beast, you need to feel that. The flaming fire in Jesus' eyes, you need to see it. You need to taste the food at the marriage supper of the Lamb in order to get the weight and glory of that. Taste it. Imagining what you're reading is the first step to being changed by it. 
Imagining what you're reading is the first step to being changed by it. You can't just look for the doctrine. You have to feel it. You have to see it. What else do symbols do? Well, they show us what things are really like. You know, from our vantage point, Satan does not always look like a dragon. Does he? He doesn't always seem like a dragon. But he is. That's what he is. You don't always feel like you're clothed in white robes washed in Jesus' blood when you sin. But you are. But you are. The church doesn't always feel like a lamp lit in a dark world. But we are. The symbols represent the true nature of things from the perspective of heaven. This is how things really are. Satan may come to you as an angel of light, but he's a dragon. He wants to kill you. And and this is important. Let me just say to you, taking the symbolism seriously is taking the Bible seriously. The Bible does this a lot. The Bible does this a lot. God carrying us on eagle's wings does not mean that God is going to grow wings and we are literally going to ride on them. It means he protects us. It means he carries us like an eagle. All the trees shall clap their hands in the new creation doesn't mean that trees are going to grow arms and clap their hands. It means that all of creation is going to praise the creator. We intuitively understand that. The the, the symbols give us meaning. We're looking for the spiritual theological meaning that God has embedded in the symbol. Does that make sense? So we are taking it seriously. We're just taking it on its own terms. Very important. Number seven. I just realized I did seven points, which is kind of unconsciously clever for Revelation. Thank you, Lord. Numbers typically carry symbolic meaning. For example, seven equals perfection or wholeness, referencing the Jewish menorah. Twelve equals completeness and unity of God's people. I I don't want to spend much time here today. We'll get into it as we go, but... It seems clear that symbolic numbers are consistent with the symbolism of the book. They have meaning, real meaning. We're talking about real historical stuff here that's happening. But they're not being used for precision. They have meaning, but they're typically not used for precision. As in, there will only be 144,000 saints in heaven. No, that's not what it means. It means that there's a completed number of saints that God has chosen and will save, and it's really big. It's a lot. So we want to see numbers mainly as symbolic, carrying meaning, figurative meaning, but we need to look at the Old Testament. We need to try to understand the, the, the context in the first century, how they would have heard this. And get to the, the, the truth that God has embedded in those numbers. Okay, you got that? You ready to go preach it? Street preach it? If you're tempted, don't do that. You're not ready. We'll come back to all this. I hope it's helpful um, as we get into the text. And we'll reference these things. But I wanted to give you something up front just to 
help us kind of set the table and enter in. But let's finish with uh, the text, one through three. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him. So I think Jesus is both the author and the subject. To show to his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John. So this is the Apostle John. And we'll talk more about him in a couple weeks. Who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. So you see here a four-stage process of revelation. God shows Jesus. Jesus gives it to angels. Angels show it to John. John shows it to the church. It's amazing to me. Like, first of all, why go through all that trouble? <laughs> well, why did you have to do that? Well, God is very kind because in the end, the revelation is coming through John, who's a human being like us. So as weird as you may think this is, it's actually really a blessing that it came through a person so we could understand it. His humanity, John's humanity, even Jesus' humanity is essential. Blessed. Seven blessings in the book of Revelation. Not an accident. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. This is a letter, probably early in the church, read out loud by an elder, just on a Sunday morning, like this. Read, taught, and God promises what? A blessing. Isn't that beautiful? That's God's heart for you. That you would be blessed by this book. Not scared, not confused, but be blessed. And what's the condition for blessing? To hear and keep, obey, do. So if you will open your heart to what God is saying and you will do it, you will be blessed. Because here's the big idea, guys. You don't have time to play around with God. You don't have time to play around. What does it say? The time is near. Jesus is coming. The original hearers were meant to think that Jesus could come in their lifetime. Imminence. This is all imminent. It's happening. We're not waiting for the end times. We're in them. We're in them. Jesus teaches that, I think, very clearly in the Gospels. We're in them. You know that feeling you get when you walk up to the edge of a cliff? that pit in your stomach. If I just said Grand Canyon, I'm going to get people, their, their palms are going to start sweating, some of you. Why do you get that feeling? Why do you get that pit in your stomach? Why do you get clammy when you come up to the edge of the cliff and you kind of look over, unless you're a kid, and then your parents are like, come back, please, just nicely pull them back. Because of the finality. If you take one more step, you can't come back. That's why we feel like that. And brothers and sisters, that's where we live. 
on the edge of eternity, on the precipice of Jesus' return. It's close. We don't know how close exactly, but it's close. This is what God is telling us over and over in the New Testament. Be ready. And that's our call, to be ready, to be enduring. When the master of the house comes home, at a time we don't expect, are we ready? Are we there to welcome him? Are, are we in the faith? Jesus has died. He has risen. He has ascended. He is ruling, and he is returning. So let's be ready. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, we give you thanks for speaking to us. We give you thanks for the words of this book that you have commanded us to read and preach and teach aloud. Now give us, Lord, ears to hear, eyes to see, power to obey, whatever you have for us. May the heart of the book, may, may the the unifying core and center of this book, really come home to us. May we lean in by your grace. In Jesus' name, amen.